I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Marcus Ryder, an expert in media representation and diversity from the Lenny Henry Center, recently gained a bit of notoriety for his tweet and blog critiquing Disney's live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Although Ryder thought the film's normalization of black beauty standards through its lead star, Halle Bailey, was important, he was critical of the film being set in the 18th century Caribbean while ignoring the existence of slavery in the Caribbean at that time. Ryder's criticism went viral and was met with backlash from various corners. On one end, you had people who believe that Ryder's criticism of The Little Mermaid downplays the movie's significance when it comes to media representation and diversity. On the other hand, you had voices peddling the culture wars that felt this was an example of cancel culture and wokeness run amok. I'm editorializing a bit here, but I was actually rather uncomfortable with the backlash against Ryder's criticism. I believe that it's important to have thoughtful, open, and engaging discourse. And in my view, if someone criticizing a movie that you like or a book upsets you, that's on you. It's like when Ishmael Reed criticized Hamilton. It's fine if you like the musical but Ishmael Reed has every right to critique it. And if that hurts your enjoyment of Hamilton, that's on you. 
In other words, I don't like it when people try to shut down the type of conversation that Ryder was trying to start. Especially seeing as, from my point of view, most people haven't actually engaged with his criticism. Instead, opting for a knee-jerk reaction based on maybe skimming the blog, only reading the title, or hearing about it in the news uh, via some sensational headline. As such, I decided to bring Marcus Ryder onto the show to discuss this all. But don't get me wrong, most of the conversation isn't focused on The Little Mermaid. Rather, the largest portion of this episode deals with what media representation and diversity is, some of his thoughts on the ongoing debates about media diversity and representation, and, rather topically, the issue of AI, or artificial intelligence, and how it can reproduce or amplify dominant cultural biases and perspectives at the expense of other perspectives and ways of thinking. It's really the latter portion of the conversation that deals with The Little Mermaid. So this is an episode that will go in a number of different directions, and I hope you enjoy it. With that being said, let's get right to it with Marcus Ryder of the Lenny Henry Center. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest I'm very excited to be speaking with, Marcus Ryder of the Sir Lenny Henry Center for Media Diversity in the United Kingdom. And uh, for people that don't know, uh, Marcus Ryder is one of the leading figures in efforts to increase inclusion and representation in the United Kingdom media industry. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Very good. Very good. Um, maybe you could give uh, my listeners a little bit of background uh, on how you became involved in uh, the media world and advocating for inclusion and diversity and what all of that entails. Sure. So I worked for 24 years at the BBC. The last eight years of those was as a senior executive, as head of current affairs for BBC Scotland. And I was head of current affairs um, documentaries during the Scottish referendum, independence referendum. And I would say that a large part of that informed how we look at how a minority, um, a significant minority with regards to Scotland, fits into a majority media culture, which is the UK, which is dominated by England. And so I was having to deal with that all the time with regards to regional diversity, and uh, from those lessons, I think there are lots of things that I can see with other um, groups which may be underrepresented either numerically or sometimes they can be in the majority, such as gender representation, and uh, to see how that their their views can be can be better represented. So I draw a lot of my views um, on my experience of, of Scotland. And obviously, as a black man who has um, been in the industry for now, it's 30 years, um, you know, I, I see it as vital for democracy. I see it vital for 
freedom of speech and how society works. But yeah. I, I want to delve into that more. Uh, when you're talking to someone that is unfamiliar with uh, the importance uh, or they're, they're not, they, they haven't thought about it maybe enough. Um, how do you explain to people the importance of uh, media representation and media diversity? Sure. Um, I think people normally get it with factual programs and news and current affairs is the easiest way in, in that, you know, media and news informs political debate and it then informs and influences what politicians prioritize. And so if we have a media which is dominated by white men, then the issues that they will raise will be issues which concern them, which then means that the um, uh, level of debate, which is both in the public sphere, but also in the political sphere, in the general public sphere, and also in the political sphere, will be dominated by the concerns of white men of a certain class, for example. You know, and so if we want to make sure that the concerns of of women are are in are debated in the public sphere and that politicians realize that they're a priority, then we need to make sure that um, the best way to get those concerns and get those views and perspectives heard is by having women in, in the newsroom. Similarly, when it comes to black people, similarly, as I said, with regards to regional diversity, making sure that a Scottish perspective and Scottish representation is in the media, you know, in the UK, and similarly for every um, type of characteristic. So people really understand it um, quite intuitively when it, or it's relatively simple to understand rather when it comes to news. But I think it's also important to understand it in terms of um, fiction and and drama. You know, so as my other, with my other hat on, I'm the chair of RADA, which is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which is the leading drama um, school, I would argue the leading drama school in the world, <laughs> um, but definitely up there, you know, so we've got the, the David Harewoods of this world, we've got Kenneth Branagh is an alumni, we've had more James Bonds um, graduate from RADA than every other drama school combined, um, so yeah, it's an important drama school in, in Britain and globally, and uh, I think it's, and media diversity is really important there, because what drama does is that it enables you to, you know, figuratively walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Drama enables you to see somebody else's perspective on a emotional and visceral level. And if what you're doing is the only perspective that you're really seeing is the perspective, values and views of white men of a certain class living in a certain geographic area, you're not going to understand um, the experience and views of the immigrant person who's living next door, of the disabled person who um, might be going to your school or working next to you. You know, so um, I think drama plays a really important role in in shaping our, our values and how we treat our neighbour, so our neighbours rather. And so, you know, media diversity in drama is equally as important. So it's interesting with um, 
media diversity and drama or just entertainment, the entertainment industry, I think a lot of times, at least in the U.S., uh, we'll focus a lot on media representation with regards to people on the screen, right? Um, so having more actors from the LGBTQ community or having more actors from the Black community, uh, actors and actresses. Uh, but I think sometimes we forget that, you know, there's also, you know, writers and directors and other creatives. And sometimes I think they get left out of the conversation. I was wondering if you could uh, comment on that. Yeah, so I work a lot with um, a actor um, called Lenny Henry, who's famous in the, in the UK and the centre which I work at and which I um, co-founded is named after him, the Lenny Henry Centre for Media Diversity. And we gave a talk at um, in Parliament in the UK, which we coined the phrase um, Milli Vanilli Diversity. And uh, what we meant by that is um, if you're script writers and if all your, and if there is diversity in your script writers and in your directors, what you effectively have is mini vanilla. You have people who are just going to be um, fronting the work and the editorial thoughts and processes um, and values of a non-diverse perspective. Of a, of a mainstream perspective. And so it can give the view of diversity, it can give the illusion of diversity, but we are not, we don't actually have um, the diversity of views because the scripts are not written. The way it's directed um, is, is not through the eyes of some of another perspective. It is still through, irrespective of how good the actors are. And I'm not saying that, that's, that the diversity of actors and on-screen diversity is not important, but unless you have um, uh, diversity behind the camera in those important editorial roles, you know, it's, it's not going to work. To use a really simple example, um, if you think about um, the something like costume design, you know, the um, costume design in, in Black Panther, you know, it was a it was a black woman that was responsible for the costume design in in Black Panther. Now that has a really important just in the costume design has a really important message and uh, um, conveys some values in costume design. And so it's really important that we have diversity in in costume design. You know, and that's just costume design. When you start to actually get to writers and directors. When I say just, I'm not I'm not trying to devalue the importance of costume design, but I'm just saying in every step of the process, of the creative process, you know, you want to make sure that you have diversity. And this, when we're talking about diversity, we're talking about uh, people, not just uh, across genders, um, but also even things like, um, you know, uh, disabled people, uh, people from different... Different people, even from different class backgrounds. There's some people that come from, um, you know, more socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, LGBTQ. And uh, I, I would say that uh, one of the arguments that you've made is that these things help us uh, promote innovation, creativity, and a lot of cultural exchange. Could you um, talk a little bit to that and the sort of cultural benefits of diversity work? Well, I mean, just... Um... At its most basic, um, if you're only 
drawing on the talents of a minority of your workforce, you are not going to be getting the full value of, of your workforce. So there is an obvious um, economic and creative benefit in that you're going to have more better creativity if you can draw on the talents of your entire workforce or potential workforce than um, uh, if you're just talking about the, the minority. But also, as I said, it's, it's really about ensuring that we have, um, uh, that we see the world differently and that our values and perspectives are, are, um, are seen as, as equal, not prioritizing one over the other. You know, so my mother is, is Jamaican. She came to the UK in the 1960s and her perspective of the UK and her story of the UK should not be seen as any less valid or any less important than somebody from a white person who was in the UK and, and born in the UK. You know, their, their experience of the 1960s, 70s, it's going to 80s, 90s to now, are just as important um, as each other's and both stories need to be told to understand the UK. And if all I hear is the perspective and all I'm told is the perspective of one person, then we're missing out a large part of social history. You know, so it's, it's ensuring that we, and, and the same goes, we, we cannot understand the historical developments over the last 30, 40 years, 100 years, when it comes to um, uh, LGBTQ um, issues, you know, if we only have straight people talking about it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, it would be, it, it would be ridiculous if the only people that are deciding, let's say, um, you know, policy that relates to um, uh, gay people or lesbians or trans people are cis white men. That doesn't, make any sense they won't have direct experience of that so i'm not saying that we exclude um cis white men from those decisions but we have to ensure that um we you know have have everybody involved in those decisions and what and what informs people's decisions what informs how we understand the world obviously our direct experience with one another but invariably it's that we are informed about the world through our media. Therefore, right back to the beginning, we need to have the media as diverse as possible. I, I wanted to hone in on that, and I do want to get into your recent writing on ChatGPT, but uh, you mentioned, you know, you were very clear there saying, you know, it's not that we want to get rid of, uh, say, representation of, you know, a, a white cishet uh, mill uh, perspective. Um, you know, the thing that I think we're dealing with now is we see a lot of this fear-mongering about, oh, uh, they only want this perspective. That's what uh, diversity is really about. Uh, and I think really what, what you're calling for is actually just uh, pluralism. Uh, so how do you respond mm -hmm. to this sort of, I guess, scaremongering? I think on uh, different levels, most people are sympathetic to the ideas of diversity and, and representation and inclusion um, in certain areas of their life. And so that's why sometimes, and just like with regards to this podcast, um, I open up with the idea of regional diversity. 
because I think that invariably people um, uh, understand the need for regional diversity. You can't have a democracy if you don't have, uh, I'm talking to an American. So if, for example, you excluded the whole of Texas um, or you excluded, you know, um, uh, 10 states, if you just decided just to write them off and say that they're never going to be represented and you're not going to let them um, uh, have political representation, everybody would understand that that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, and so similarly, once you understand that and you understand the importance of media representation is very closely aligned to political representation, people get the idea of regional representation and then you just step by step, and nobody is arguing, for example, that to ensure that you have better political representation um, uh, regionally, that that means that you want to have less representation of certain states or that you know one vote shouldn't um, be the same. Now, what we can argue about, which is, um, and you see the debate going on in the states, is... What is the best way of, of doing that? What is the best way of making sure that you don't have the tyranny of the majority, for example? You know, and so in the UK, we have what's called the first past the post system, which means that we haven't had a British government where the majority of people have actually voted for, where over 50% of the people have actually voted for the current government in power for, I think, since 1945, I think, something like that. And similarly, in the in the US, where um, you've got the um, I think it's the college system, you know, you you know whether one vote equals the same in New York as it does in Idaho. There are issues with regards to that, and so there can be issues with regards to um, should you be looking for absolute parity to achieve diversity and inclusion in on screen and um, uh, and behind the camera, you know. So you can have those kind, of, and and I those are important debates, but those are debates that you have once you recognise that representational democracy is important, right? So we need to get to the point where we recognise that media diversity is important. Then we can start to have debates, and there will always be disagreements, and it's never perfect as to, you know, whether the UK democracy system is as good as the French way that we French implement democracy or the way the US implement democracy but they all want representational democracy so similarly we want to get to the point where we can argue about how we have diversity in the media and say is this the better system of getting it or is that the better system of getting it but we want to get or I want us to get to the place where we all agree that um, representation in the media is important Where do you think the most gains have been made when it comes to uh, media representation and uh, diversity of voices uh, in media. Well, I think it's it's really specific to um, the type of media and to the um, location that you're in. So, for example, if you look at the UK, the television and radio industry is heavily regulated. You know, so there are ways in which um, and all the um, television broadcasters have to have a specific license and what we call public service broadcasters 
which are your major broadcasters, um, have to have certain license requirements um, from from government because they're seen are, are as those so. Those channels like Channel Four and BBC, for example. BBC, Channel Four, ITV, Channel Five, um, and so if there are ways in which through those license requirements, so those license requirements, for example, will be X amount of programs need to be produced outside of London. X amount, you, you need X number of hours of news per day to be broadcast at prime time. You need X amount um, of children's programs. You need, so through those licenses, it's, there are ways in which you can, the regulator can literally enforce um, change. Where, and so often in the UK, it's easier to actually focus on media diversity in the television and radio industry, whereas newspapers are don't have the same regulation, and so that can be that can be more difficult, you know. So, but at the same time, you have a plurality. I hate that word, but you have a plurality of of, of newspapers. So, in some ways. Because you have more competition than you do with regards to television, then uh, you know they're trying to establish themselves, and there is more competition. And then you can have a better argument with regards to whether they can chase certain demographics and whether they can chase certain readerships. You know, so you might be able to get gains there. So it's it's going to be different arguments um, and different tactics and different policies. So yeah, I mean, my the poll board is setting up the centre is because there is no easy answer to that question as to where can we have those gains. Um, so my job is to try and identify where there might be a possibility for um, those kind of gains and to, and to push for those and to advise companies as to and government as to where we might be able to change policies to increase um, uh, media diversity and inclusion. Are you, I, I, I'm I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but are you able to give any examples of places where you you've suggested gains could be made, like what you were saying uh, about recommendations that you would make, maybe to government or or uh, yeah, different? Sure. Yeah. All right. So um, I'll give you an example of what we have. Um, one example which we suggested, which wasn't taken up, and I'll give you an example of a suggestion that. Um, wasn't taken up. So one which was taken up, one which wasn't taken up. So what we were finding is that um, broadcasters were setting specific targets for um, uh, underrepresented groups. So they would set a target of saying, let's um, aim for 20% of um, our employees to come from um, ethnic minorities. You know, black in Britain, it's often called black, Asian, and minority ethnic, or it would be the same as BIPOC or whatever collective noun you want to, to use. Right. And while we're saying that that's fine, um, the issue is, is that they would continually be going for the low hanging fruit. Um, and so they would be able to hit set targets, which they knew they could hit by um, constantly going for. Um, certain roles, you know, and so working with Channel Four with one initiative that they um, rolled out, we at one point for one program we said that they should be going for a hundred percent target. Now, Channel Four at that point for that particular program were very worried that they were going to to fail, 
and it's about public perception of whether you fail to hit your diversity tag targets. And they said, if with this particular program, um, you go for 100%, we recognize you're not going to reach it. But in going for 100% behind the camera and in front of the camera, um, you'll be able to identify where your gaps are. So, for example, yeah, you you know that you'll be able to find um, black assistant producers, producers, and script writers, for example, but set designers, um, wardrobe, and multi-camera directors are going to be very difficult. We, they then found it very difficult to find. And so that meant that they were able to identify the gaps and then they were able to implement training policies accordingly. You know, and so Channel 4 now have a new training uh, from the gaps that they've identified, uh, a new scheme to increase diversity of women and sound engineers, women sound engineers and engineers coming from um, ethnic minority backgrounds. You know, so, um, so that's recommendations which we've taken on board. You know, the recommendation which hasn't been taken on board um, uh, that I look over at some of the states in America that has is um, looking at film and high-end TV tax breaks. So lots of jurisdictions have got tax breaks um, for film and high-end TV. It's why you have games, Game of Thrones um, filming in in Ireland. It's why you have um, you know productions in certain states where you just think, why on earth did they go there? And it's because you know those large studios are working the margins. You know, they're they it really matters. It can be worth millions of dollars. You know, if they get a tax break of just one percent, two percent more than if they go to another state. You know, so that's really important. And what um, we've been arguing. For and the work that we've done is whether you should get a tax break if you um, fulfill certain diversity requirements. Now, I see that I think New Jersey has um, and New York and I think California have rolled out some form of tax break based on um, diversity. In uh, From a cursory look at it, I think it could be better. Um, in in those jurisdictions, but the principle is there. Um, so so yeah, so that's one thing which I know that a lot of people are arguing for that we've argued for, and you know we're we're still looking at that. So then, moving into ChatGPT, uh, you recently had a blog post on your blog, Black on White TV. Uh, the blog was entitled ChatGPT is an existential threat to media diversity. Uh, so you're taking this very seriously. Um, why is ChatGPT and, and maybe uh, the evolution of AI right now, which is happening at seemingly a breakneck pace, uh, why should we maybe have some concerns about this in relation to media representation and diversity? Um, because it goes to um, how we how we see the world. So, for example. In um, 2020, at the height of the Black Lives Matter global protest, um, there was a statue of a um, of an enslaver of a in Bristol. So Bristol in the UK was a was a major slave port. So there's a lot of slave history. Um, 
and that statue was toppled. Right? The, the protesters toppled the statue and they um, threw it in the river. Right? That same week, um, there was a very famous case of a woman of a British, okay, of a woman of Asian um, heritage who had um, uh, left the UK to fight for ISIS called Shamima Begum or to show um, loyalty to, to ISIS. And she was um, stripped of her um, nationality, of her British nationality, despite the fact that she was born in Britain and didn't have any other nationality. But in theory, she could, because of her parents, in theory, she, she could claim, even though she's never been, even though she hasn't yet, she could claim nationality of, uh, of another country. Um, but it's whether you are British and whether you can be stripped of your British nationality. And she is a, um, a, an Asian woman. Right. And that, and as I said, it was, uh, that, that week in June was a, um, was the height of the Black Lives Matter protest. Right. Don't worry, I'm getting back to G chat GPT, right? Just getting the long way around there. Right. So, um, a group called Women in Journalism, which is a UK-based organisation, they studied the bylines for that one week in June um, of the 11 most um, popular newspapers in the UK and who got those bylines. And what they found was that only a quarter went to women, so three quarters went to, to men. And of the 174 bylines, only four went to people of colour and zero went to black people. So that's the bylines of the front pages that week. Um, and they picked the week at random. It just so happened it was the week where the statue was toppled, that Shamima Begum's um, nationality was under review and um, Black Lives Matter was, was happening. Black Lives, yeah, was happening. So these are the three biggest stories all had a massive racial element um, to them. So if you then ask, if you then go onto ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT about the statute being toppled or about Shamima Begum's um, nationality or about Black Lives Matter that week, what ChatGPT will give you is that it will, because the data which it receives... Right, the data it, it receives is from those articles. Absolutely. So it will give you the perspective of... Just 100%, I mean, with the exception of four articles, it will give you the perspective of, of white people and it will be disproportionately white men, you know? And I suspect the, they didn't do it, they didn't do it, but I, a, women in journalism didn't use this category, but I suspect it was non-disabled white men. And knowing where the UK um, uh, newspaper industry is based, I strongly suspect it will be London-based um, uh, non-disabled white men. Go one further, and, I, and if they'd crunched the figures, I would also suspect it would be straight non-disabled white men in and around London, you know. And so you're getting, so you, you will ask ChatGPT a question, and it will give you, and no longer will you be able to even realise that you have got a problem, that you've got a diversity problem because the chat GPT gives you the illusion 
of um, of objectivity. And it gives you the illusion that it's not racially biased or isn't biased with regards to, to gender because it's just a computer program, you know. But what you're but what it is churning out in its answers, um, depending on the prompts that you ask it, is going to be coming from a white male perspective. So what it does in other words, the algorithms are sort of uh causing chat GPT to uh basically replicate or throw back at you the whatever the dominant perspective is. And amplify it, absolutely. And you and you put it a lot more succinctly than than I have just rambled on. So I appreciate that. But yeah, you you've you've been able to summarize it spot on. So then in that regard, it, it's interesting how how and I, I mean this may be a bigger question than really I, I'm not expecting you to be able to necessarily answer it uh fully, but we, we can't just disengage from chat GPT. You even mm-hmm. say that in the blog. But what how how should we be thinking about chat GPT then and ways to engage with it constructively? Uh and you know, how can we get it to benefit everyone? Okay, so that's that's a really good Good question, because we, I, I think it would be very difficult just to simply disengage from ChatGPT and um, talking to, to fellow journalists. It's being increasingly used, if not to write articles, to at least um, support journalists um, in the writing of articles. And so what I would suggest is that journalists recognise um, this potential for bias and think about it in their prompt questions when they're working with ChatGPT. You know, so I've been playing around with it. And if you asked um, ChatGPT for, can you please cite um, black journalists on the, you know, if you, if you ask him, tell me about reparations and please use black um the sources of of black journalists it won't be able to help currently it won't be able to do that right if you um prompt it and ask it for can you please give me a list of the um uh, most notable black experts who have commented on reparations right it will be able to give you that list and so then that enables you to supplement anything else that chat gpt might give you to then go and go back to those original source materials and those original people um so it can be a useful tool but you need to recognize that in asking what asking it in your prompt question if you do not recognize the importance of diversity and explicitly address the issues it will give you, or it may well give you, not necessarily, it may well give you a um, a perspective which is disproportionately the view of white men because the source material that the algorithm is using is disproportionately sourced by material which is written by white men. Now, since you've written that blog, I know you expressed interest in that uh, particular blog about you know working with other uh, journalists and other voices and other creatives about creating a manifesto or set of guidelines. Uh, what what are your sort of um, hopes when it comes to how we as a society should work with ChatGPT in a constructive way? Uh, 
what are your hopes and uh, have you had any luck with uh, getting other people interested in tackling this issue? Um, well, if you, if you go to that same blog and you um, Google, or not Google, if you put in the search function, institutional memory, you will you will see that I was very concerned about the loss of institutional memory um, when it comes to diversity policies and the lack of using academic rigor when we look at diversity policies. And from that blog, a lot of academics and prominent um, media practitioners came together. And to cut a very long story short, um, the center which I currently work for, the um, Selene Henry Center for Media Diversity, was born out of that blog, right? And so, but it took about a year from writing that blog to um, uh, to secure funding. And I didn't write it with the idea of securing funding and setting up the Selene Henry Center for Media Diversity. This was, it, it just so happened, or not, it didn't just so happen, but that was the result. And so similarly, I wrote the AI blog two weeks ago, a, year, a week ago, relatively recent. Um, and so I hope that it's, it, will, it will be built upon and whether that means that, um, uh, and I've already had some interest from a few academics and one or two practitioners who come back to me and notice that and said, we need to talk and I've got a few conversations. I've had I had a conversation yesterday with um, a leading academic in this in this field, and I've had a few practitioners say that we need to talk. And so I'm I'm optimistic that we can maybe come up with a set of guidelines. Maybe um, uh, I doubt maybe an institute, but maybe if it's just guidelines, or maybe if it just becomes part of the public discourse so that it's an issue that people recognize needs to be addressed. Um, uh, you know, that, that would be good in, in and of itself. One thing I wanted to discuss with you is, um, I, and I didn't know until recently that you had a um, uh, blog about this, but sometimes I think that uh, this discussion we're having and the discussions you're having with others about uh, the importance of diversity and how it can promote a pluralistic society. Sometimes I think that gets sort of pushed down out of the conversation by various sensational headlines and sort of these culture war debates about things like, for instance, um, uh, Raw Dahl and and you know oh uh, the the publishers of the Raw Dahl books uh, Puffin uh, they they want to change the language here and there and people argue about that but. What they won't think about is, you know, Raul Dahl's not the problem issue. The problem is that we don't have resources being put into, you know, black and Asian authors. There's not any uh, push for more diversity. Instead, we're arguing about uh, how can the Dahl estate make more money off of this? We really should be putting more resources into uh, diverse voices that are struggling to get their voices heard in children's literature. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I think sometimes we um, get confused about the, the the symptoms of a problem, or we accept the um, the framing of a problem, and so 
Roldo is a good example. The it's it's framed. The problem is framed as: Do we want to rewrite Roldal um, or not? So that's how the problem is framed. And part of my job is to, and that's also a diversity problem, because how we frame a problem is often set. Because what happens is that you'll have your quote-unquote non-diverse or your dominant group setting the framework of which an issue is debated. And then even if they bring in, or even if we have black and Asian people or women or LGBTQ people or whatever, debating the issue, and so it can look like you've got a really good representative diversity, diverse debate going on, if the actual framing of the debate is being set by people of a, of a certain dominant group, right? That can actually stop um, progress. So I would say that was the problem with Valdar in that the whole debate was set by um, a certain dominant group and it was framed in terms of, should we rewrite Valdar or not? It was not set is that I go to my local bookshop. It's it's funny. I happened to be at the airport, and they at and I went into the bookshop at the airport at the time of the debate. Um, and what they had was that they had Raldal, um, Williams, who's a massive um child's author in the UK, um, J.K. Rowling, and I think they had one other. Um, children's, and but they were all white people, right? And so, and, and they had this section of, um, you know, popular children's fiction, you know. So I was like, while it, while you can have that debate, you know, we're we're taking our eye off the ball, you know, as to what are the diversity of, of voices, you know. Now at the same time, don't get me wrong, and, and I always have to stress this. I've got a, he's just turned seven, actually. So he turned seven yesterday. But I've got a seven-year-old boy at six years old. He loves Wild Dog. That's great. So I'm not saying that he needs um, to only read certain authors. You know, I you know, should only read black authors or I'm only going to push um, women authors to him. You know, I want him to have that full breadth. I want him to be able to read Valdan. I want him to to read, um, you know, everybody. So, but just making sure that he has that diversity, that he has that diversity of perspective. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing at work is, and I know you quote this, is that you, you look at British writers of Keller and they're disproportionately self-published uh, compared to their white counterparts. And we, we often are focusing on, oh, how can this estate keep, you know, uh, making money off this? Or how can they introduce this to a new generation, to put it more nicely? And we're not thinking about, oh, what, what can we do for uh, younger creatives uh, to help them along and uh, provide their sort of perspective through their creative works? No, absolutely. So we also need to look at those gatekeepers. So if you look at the publishing industry, you know, we can get... Um, Invariably, we, we can measure progress as to whether there are more or less um, black authors, for example. You know, but 
in in my experience of the publishing industry, and I've had um, two books published, nearly all the people that I have, I'm trying to figure out whether I should actually say nearly, I think all, I, don't, I think I actually might be being polite, all the people that I have directly worked with at my publishers um, have been white. You know, so the people who decide which black voices um, uh, are heard, the people who, um, uh, you know, when I pitch a book, it goes through various manifestations of saying, oh, we like it, but can you tweak it this way? We like it, can you tweak it that way? And the people who are talking to me about that are um, exclusively white. Now I could go to another publisher's, and so we, we could say it's not exclusively white, we could say it's disproportionately white, but it does mean that um, uh, my voice is being mediated and black people's voices is being mediated through a disproportionately white prism. One thing I wanted to ask about, and I'll give my listeners the background on this so you don't have to um, go into the whole thing, but it's a current event. Uh, there was this uh, TikTok prankster uh, by the name of Mizzy, uh, who I guess was on, I forget if it was BBC or Channel 4. He, he was on BBC and um, uh, GB News, and he's been on various, but he was on BBC, but he's been on various um, news outlets. Yeah, I wanted to outlets. talk a little bit about the, the controversy about... Um, him being interviewed, I guess he was asked about Andrew Tate, and he responded pretty angrily. Uh, what was the sort of issue from the prism that you look at at things, uh, this diversity and rep representation angle? What's your take on this controversy that has arisen uh, around the interviewing of this uh, very infamous TikTok prankster, Mizzy? Um, so I think... What we need to look at when we think about interviewing um, Mizzy is there's, there's a lot of different things at play. So first of all, he's a he's a young black man, and he and if we're interviewing um, uh, him about Andrew Tate and what he was being interviewed with regards to appropriate use of social media and um, you know, toxic masculinity. There are lots of um, black people who are very qualified to discuss these issues. And what we invariably find is that black expertise is often eschewed um, while the um, kind of the ex black experience is promoted. And it can feel very anthropological in in nature, that somehow we are not uh, cognitive, that black people are not viewed as being cognitive and intelligent people. And what and if they want that kind of objective view on things, they will go to the white expert. What black what black people are is that invariably we're perceived as being, um, uh, you know, it's our experience which is valued, and that can feel very um, uh, as I said, almost anthropological. This is exacerbated, um, uh, you know, and further amplified by the fact that the people interviewing 
Mizzy or these people are invariably white people. So the interviewers are white people of with power. And so there's a massive power imbalance. So you've got the powerful person being uh, who representing the establishment uh, and objectivity, being white, interviewing the young black man or the young black person who is not seen as having experience and not seen as having expertise and objectivity, but seen as having um, uh, a lived experience. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a time and a place to interview people with experience, you know, and that everybody you interview needs to have a PhD in toxic masculinity and gender studies. Absolutely not. But if you, if we find that um, uh, news is disproportionately prioritizing black experience over expertise, then there's a problem. And if we find that there's not equality um, vis-a-vis white counterparts or male counterparts um, or certain dominant, dominant groups versus, versus um, underrepresented groups, then there's a clear problem. It, it, do you think that's been missed in the conversations that are being had in the UK about uh, Missy's recent TV appearances? Because I, I think a lot of people are talking about, oh, uh, this kid um, is known for his pranks and they're often you know, illegal activity type pranks. Uh, do you think that your angle on this is sort of getting maybe lost in the shuffle in some ways? Yeah, but I'm not, um, I'm not too concerned or not too worried about that. My, my job is to look at the media industry on a macro level. My job is not to um, advise a news editor as to whether he or she should interview Mizzy, right? My job is to be able to crunch the data, to take a more analytical and macro approach. And so that when I go in and advise news editors at the BBC, or I go in and advise ITV News, for example, I can say, here are the bigger issues you need to worry about. You know, otherwise, we get stuck on this on the specifics as to should we interview Mizzy or not? Should we interview um, one black person or not? Should we interview one white, you know, and we get lost in tiny specifics and we can argue ourselves to death. That's not my job. That's not my expertise. Well, I think it is my expertise. I was a news editor for, you know, eight years. So I, I do have expertise, but that's not why people employ me in my current role. People employ me in my current role so I can go in and say, listen, you have a problem if the only time you interview black people is when they're not qualified and you're only thinking about their experience and you've got a problem if the if objectivity is seen as the domain of white people, not of black people. I, I was going to say, for me, an example of this that pops up in, in my head is, um, you know, a while back I interviewed um, a scholar, uh, William Darity, uh, who's probably the leading scholar in the U.S. on the question of reparations. Um, but I don't see him interviewed much in media, even when the topic of reparations comes up. Um, you may see someone talk about reparations in the media and they're interviewing um, maybe a black celebrity or um, someone involved in the rap world, which there's not a problem with that. But, you know, there is a problem with 
well, why is it this scholar who is very informed on the topic and it's his main area of expertise, he's not being interviewed on that. Um, so it, it seems like there's parallels that can be made between uh, this incident yeah. with Mizzy and uh, other areas. Absolutely. You, you see it time and time again. Yeah, you, you absolutely see it time and time again. The last thing I wanted to touch upon with you, uh, you've gained a bit of uh, notoriety recently uh, for a blog post you made uh, about Disney's Little Mermaid and its treatment uh, or maybe non-treatment of um, Caribbean slavery. Uh, and I, I, when I read the blog, I thought it was very thoughtful. Uh, and I also thought the maybe backlash some people had to it uh, was very wrongheaded because it sounds like you're very supportive of a lot of what the documentary did uh, – not the documentary, the live action Little Mermaid movie did. Uh, but, you know, there are uh, criticisms to be made. So could you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write that piece and maybe um, what misunderstandings people had about it? Yeah, sure. So I think, um, so what I was saying is that I think that the, um, a, so I'm of Jamaican heritage. And so I'm, sensitive to um, slavery and that time of the 18th century um, in the in the Caribbean and you know it's for when we think about that time it is very easy to erase what was a absolutely horrific time so I watched it and I, I watched it with my son um, and my wife actually, the whole family went to see the film. And if you, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a it's a really fun film, you know. Um, uh, it hasn't got some of my favorite. I mean, I'm, having a seven year old, you become a Disney expert in in the different Disney songs. So if I'm being completely honest, it's not um, my uh, my favorite when when the Little Mermaid songs come on. You know, I like Moana more, <laughs> but you know, um, all things you know, take into consideration, it's it's a fun film. The issue that I had with the film is that it is set um, in, uh, there are a lot of cultural signals um, that it draws upon, which look like, um, because it doesn't, isn't specific, but it looks like 18th century Caribbean, right? And uh, we need to be careful that time is a that time and place is a really sensitive time and place, and so my concern is that we don't want to pretend that 18th century Caribbean um, was was a fun place, you know, any more than if we set something which had a lot of cultural references, visual, musically, and otherwise, to um, 18th century um, antebellum south. In, in other know? words, I think your your criticism is that if it's going to take place in this era where there was slavery, we don't want to whitewash that. Yeah. Now the the problem is right. That, so, but there were. I mean, there were two problems that I um, can see with my um, not so much blog, but with my with my tweet. Right, is that people read headlines, and so the tweet is saying it doesn't address 
slavery. Now, people read that and be like, you know, it was ridiculous saying, are you saying that um, she should have been picking, that the Little Mermaid should have been picking cotton? Right? Now, of course, I'm not saying that, right? My problem is setting it in the 18th, if you're going to set it in the 18th century Caribbean, that's problematic. Now, ideally, I would prefer if it wasn't set in 18th century Caribbean. You know, there are lots of times and places when it when it could have been set. And so I would set um, it in a, in a different time. Or if you're going to insist on setting it in that time, then there are times and then you could make specific, you could actually make a virtue of it and set it possibly in Haiti, you know, which in 1805, if you look at the Haitian constitution, ad directly addresses the issue of race and that they wanted to be a post-racial um, society, you know, and Disney can address some really difficult um, issues when it when it wants to, which are age appropriate. So as I said, I watched a lot of Disney recently, having a, having a young child. So Encanto, for example, addresses some really sensitive issues with regards to refugees, um, and immigration, and um, Latinx communities. You know, so and similarly, Turning Red is able to address some really um, sensitive issues with regards to the um, Asian community and the immigrant experience, um, uh, you know, in the in the US. So it is possible to address, but, you know, what happens is that I feel that we are, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that if you, this is about diversity behind the camera, right? The diversity in front of the camera on The Little Mermaid was excellent. You'd be, I, I honestly think you'd be in a fool to to question the diversity in front of the camera. Well, maybe not a fool, but I don't. Diversity in front of the camera, the on-screen diversity, um, Halle Bailey, fantastic. A lot of the other casting choices, fantastic. I was going to say, you, you even say in the blog that you it, it is sort of a milestone for you and your family when you're watching it to yeah. see you know, black beauty standards being sort of normalized through um, Hallie's turn in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but what's interesting is the diversity behind the camera. So of The Little Mermaid, of the remake, of the writer and the director. Um, and I think in other um, major um, key roles, um, are, dis are once again disproportionately white, right? Whereas if you look at the key roles in Encanto, or if you look at the key roles behind the camera, right, this is all behind the camera, um, of Turning Red. In Turning Red, they're disproportionately um, East Asian, or of East Asian heritage. And in Encanto, they're disproportionately of Latinx heritage, right? And so what happens is that through the best, if you look at The Little Mermaid for me, through the best intentions, right? And I think it was the best intentions of increasing representation in front of the camera, right? It's a problem of framing, right? In that I, Disney gives me a, an insidious choice. And the insidious choice that Disney gives me is 
I can celebrate um, black representation. I can celebrate black beauty, but I have to put my blinkers on about the fact it's got a lot of cultural signals that it's set in a time and place of horrendous crimes against humanity, right? Or I can not have representation at all and just go and and watch the original Little Mermaid, you know, which isn't set in that same problematic um, place. You know, so I, I've got... I don't want to, and it's about the framing. I don't want to have that framing. I want to be able to um, not have a difficult conversation with my son. Um, I want I wanted to unequivocally to be able to say to my son, enjoy the film, it's fantastic. Not enjoy the film and at a later date, I have to say to him, you do realize that, you know, the the Little Mermaid, even though I was encouraging you to sing along and really love the fact you love it, you know, it might have subconsciously made you think that um, that was a nice time for black people. And it actually wasn't. I don't want to have that conversation, you know, so I prefer to sit it somewhere else. Or if I am going to have that conversation, I wish that Disney had been able to address it with as fine a touch and with the nuance that it's able to was able to address Latinx concerns in Encanto, or is able to address East Asian immigrant concerns in Turning Red. It sounds like there is a way where, you know, if you're going to set it in that time period, uh, you know, you can sort of address these issues in a very thoughtful way, um, while also still delivering uh, a cinema that empowers uh, the viewers. Yeah. And I think what's important is that it's not about us cancelling, you know, because so many times in these um, in these debates, it's, you know, it, it becomes a binary of is Little Mermaid good or is it bad? Should we cancel right. it? Should I not go? It's not about that. It's, it is, comp- and I, I want to go. I went, I loved it. If somebody asked me, should I go to Little Mermaid? I can, of course, go to Little Mermaid. Right, if I great. could real quick, not to interrupt you, but I, I wanted to say the thing that got me uh, sort of riled up about some of the the responses people had to your blog and, and the initial tweets was, you know, you weren't really saying uh, let's cancel this movie or, you know, this movie has no value. I think you saw a lot of value in it. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't have criticisms um, and criticism I- doesn't necessarily mean absolute cancellation or absolute hatred of uh, a piece of art. No, and, and what I would hope is that th- th- this is not the last film with, last Disney film with a black princess, or it's not the last film with, you know, although in the next Disney film, we can have a black prince, for example, right? But in so doing, I hope that they can, um, it would be irresponsible for someone of my standing of somebody where I have the job that I have, not to point out these issues so that it can be informed in the next Disney film, or they can think about it in the in the next, you know, Pixar film or whatever it is. You know, this is making sure that we can have a debate about these things and that we can build on the strength and the obvious strength of the Little Mermaid, right? 
and we can make the next film even better, as opposed to thinking shutting down debate. I I, I think you've answered the the last question I was going to ask you, which was, you know, I've seen people say uh, we shouldn't have these kind of debates or discourses um, like we're having about the Little Mermaid. Uh, because people will say, oh, you know, it's too soon. Uh, we should enjoy what a milestone this is. And by making that 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 criticism or having a discourse about maybe uh, a problematic element, uh, we're, you know, hurting uh, the, the enjoyment of this uh, great movie and we're not celebrating the milestone achievements uh, it, it has in terms of diversity. But I don't think that's true. I think uh, you can do two things at once. I, th I think you can do two things at once. And I think that my blog and my tweets are aimed at grown-ups, you know, and I, and I suspect that the people that are, and when I've seen the response, they are grown-ups that are responding grown-ups. I don't know any child that wants to read my blog, to be honest with you, or anything that I've written. Right. And so as such, if we're talking about positive representation and enjoyment of the film, this should be about positive representation of my, at the time, six, now seven-year-old son enjoying it. And I don't think my blog in any way diminished um, uh, his visceral enjoyment and um, visceral appreciation on a subconscious level of Black beauty standards. And uh, the debate amongst grown-ups I think should be able to be had, um, uh, you know, in a when a, when and where appropriate. And I think I don't think it's inappropriate to have that debate now for grown-ups. Do you think there's a danger in not having those debates? So when someone says, "Oh, we should hold off on the debates," you know, have the media debates, uh, you know, a year later. Do you think there's uh, any downside to people doing that? I guess because I, I think there may be. You know, I think we need to have these debates uh, very openly and. You know, constantly we need to be having a debate and sort of evolving our views. Uh, we can't just wait uh, to have the debate, in my view. So, I mean, this is it's invariably um, a a criticism of when views are expressed which people don't like. Says, so, "Oh, we're not we're not criticizing the view; we're criticizing the timing." You know, and so, for example, um, uh, I had a lot of discussion about media representation about people's views on on the monarchy and how that was represented in the UK at the time of Queen Elizabeth II's death and at the time of the coronation. And so there were some people that were saying we shouldn't be talking about this at all because it's disrespectful. Um, in the UK media, I think the American media covered the issue far better, um, covering a different range of views. I'm not saying that one view is better than the others, but in, in terms of covering the range of views. But the debate was... But the other criticism that often has is like, we should have it later on. Now, now, later on is when the issue isn't important anymore, when people aren't necessarily listening. You know, so right now, you know, so it was important to raise the fact that at the point of the Queen's death, the, um, the time which people were most listening to um, uh, issues about the Queen was at that time, you know? And so it's, it's important that, um, you know, we don't just 
wait, but we don't just wait until a time where it's no longer in the public consciousness. You know, there are certain things in the public consciousness and in, in the public um, uh, square which are being debated or being talked about. You know, so those are the relevant times to talk about. Uh, you know, I work in academia, and sometimes academ academics complain about the fact that no one's listening to what they're saying, and that's because academia can take so long, understandably, to um, engage in certain arguments that it can actually happen um, and they can publish their work after the public debate has moved on. You know, so there's definitely a place to discuss these things in two years' time, five years' time, ten years' time. But there's also a, um, an argument to ensure that these things are debated while the issue is hot. I just had two more questions. Uh, the first one, and I hope it's not too out of left field, but um, when we talk about um, media representation and media diversity and getting all these different perspectives from people that come from different walks of life. Um, we've talked about gender. We've talked about, um, you know, race, ethnicity. Uh, is there anything to be said about, um, I guess, class or socioeconomic background when it comes to media diversity and representation? Oh, absolutely. Um, so socioeconomic diversity is, is incredibly important. And uh, I think... In the UK, that debate is um, far more advanced, possibly than than in the U US. You know, the the only thing which I would caution against is when one form of diversity is pitted against another form of diversity. So, what you invariably hear is that um, in the UK, you invariably hear, "Oh, the problem is not racial diversity; the problem really is socioeconomic diversity." You know, because the argument is that um, black people or ethnic minorities are are poorer. As they're saying, it's not really racial, it's actually economic diversity. We don't need to prioritise one over the other. You know, we don't need to supplement one. We can, you know, think about both things at the same time, just as we can think about gender diversity and disability um, at the same time. We should be able to think about racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity at the same time. And regional diversity, you know, Dr. Clyburn Wunker, who's at um, University College London, I think he put it best when he said what you should be aiming for is inclusion. And if you have an inclusive environment, diversity will follow. Invariably what happens, I think, and if you have an inclusive environment, that means that you should then be able to get socioeconomic diversity, disability, race, et cetera, et cetera. I think what invariably happens is that we aim for diversity because the metrics are easier to measure, you know, and the KPIs, the key um, performance indicators are easier to, to measure. And then we hope that inclusion will come, you know. And so then we get, um, uh, you know, we, we focus on tiny different metrics, you know. So what we, we are hoping, what I would hope for is that we look at inclusion and then all forms of diversity, whether that's regional, whether that's socioeconomic, whether that's race, et cetera, should follow. It sounds like you're advocating for a um, sort of holistic approach. Like it can't just be, uh, we can't just focus on, you know, only race or only socioeconomic status or only gender or only, you know, we need to sort of take a holistic approach. Yeah, 
that, and that doesn't mean that we don't sometimes take a step back when taking that holistic approach and be like, okay, we're taking a holistic approach, but oops, look, we've got, we, I look around the, the company that I work in and we've got absolutely no gay and lesbian and trans people working here. There was clearly a problem, you know, or, you know, and so sometimes focusing on individual groups will show you where you're going wrong holistically, you know? So, so yeah, ab- absolutely. The very last question I had for you, and it's sort of a, a two-parter in a way, but um, I just was curious, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation? And also, what do you think the biggest mis- uh, misinterpretation um, or misreading, um, and I'm putting it charitably in that regard, uh, people have when when uh, talking about um, media diversity is like ha- – I, like I said, there's a lot of scaremongering that goes around um, and, and people that attack, uh, you know, diversity initiatives. Uh, so what do you think the biggest misrepresent or misinterpretation people have about media diversity work is? Um, I think what people, so I wrote a book called Access All Areas, a diversity manifesto for TV and beyond. And what we did with that is that um, myself, I wrote that with Lenny Henry. And what we did is we punched the figures and we showed that only 3% of the population is white, heterosexual, male, um, non-disabled, living in and around London. Okay? So I have those five characteristics. However, and it's only three percent. Um, to be to be honest, it's actually three point one percent. Right, so it's only three point one percent. But that three point one percent is disproportionately, insanely overrepresented in all walks of life, media being one of them. And so, if you are a woman, diversity matters to you, irrespective of your race. If you are black, diversity matters to you. If you are disabled, diversity matters to you. If you don't live in um, in London, diversity matters to you. And so if you care about representation, if if you if you care about yourself, the lack of diversity only benefits 3.1% of the population, you know, and I would, I haven't crunched the numbers in the US because I'm not American, but my overall message is to, is to say to people that the diversity debate is a debate which helps the vast, vast majority of people. If we have a more inclusive um, media, chances are, it will actually help the, your representation and get your views across better. You know, so it's it's your debate. You benefit from it. I, I was going to say, too, I think it would even help. I mean, the, the elephant in the room here, I, you know, I'm a white cishet male. I think it would even help people in that category. Of course, because what what, what we want is is that we want a society with a more harmonious society 
So if we have a society which, um, you know, disproportionately only um, benefits or disproportionately benefits, not only benefits, disproportionately benefits one group, that's not going to lead to a harmonious society at peace with itself. Well, I want to let you get going, um, Marcus Ryder. But uh, again, if you want to say anything in closing on what you hope listeners get out of this conversation, and uh, also how can my listeners keep up with your work? Um, they should check out um, Google Seleni Henry Center for Media Diversity. We publish lots of papers. Um, uh, so that's Seleni uh, Henry Center for Media Diversity. We publish lots of papers on media diversity, lots of research work, which I hope they'd find interesting. Um, similarly, they can check out my Black on White TV um, blog and uh, um, Google that, Black on White TV. And uh, I, I publish in, in other places as well. And they can also buy, um, the plug I should have is that they can buy my book, which either Black British Lives Matter, um, which is published by Faber, or um, Access All Areas, the Diversity Manifesto for TV and Beyond, also published by Faber. Real quick, uh, what is, can you give a rundown uh, briefly of uh, Black British Lives Matter? I didn't get to ask you about it earlier. The Black British Lives Matter collection of essays of prominent um, Black British, by prominent Black British figures explaining why um, they're um, in different fields and why Black representation enriches those fields and is important in those different fields. So we have the architect um, for the, um, uh, the, Museum of African American History, um, uh, which is in DC, I think. You're American, so you would know better than me. Um, but he's a um, black British guy called David Ajay. So David Ajay. And uh, so he writes why um, black British architecture um, matters. You know, we've got the prominent historian David Harewood explaining why black people in the field of history matter. Um, uh, we have um, uh, other people talking about why Black British presence and representation in the legal field matter, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's a great note to end it on. And thank you again, Marcus Ryder, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks so much. Okay, take care. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marcus Ryder. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike to Parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.